Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. And we start this week with a problem. It was a problem with the Wedgwood family, which you might have heard of. They started a pottery empire in England. They became very wealthy. Well, in the 1800s, Emma Wedgwood, who was part of this family, married a man named Charles. And Charles was worried because his mother was also a Wedgwood. So he and his wife were first cousins. He really fretted about this. Uh, He had several children who died, um, but many who lived, and was a very successful family, in fact. Geneticist Adam Rutherford says that despite the family's success and wealth, Charles knew that he and his wife being so closely related could pose some serious issues. He had done lots of experiments, particularly with orchids, in which he was beginning to demonstrate this idea of pedigree collapse, which is what we're talking about, that if you, the closer related two sexual partners are, the more likely that they will have problems. Rutherford is the author of the new book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, The Human Story Retold Through Our Genes. And he argues that if anyone was in a position to know that inbreeding was not good, it was Emma Wedgwood's husband. Though I should say that Charles's last name was not Wedgwood. It was Darwin. And so he began to think that the more closely related humans were to each other, the more that their children were likely to be unwell or suffer from congenital problems. History, of course, has borne this out. Take, for example, the Habsburgs, a royal European family with tremendous power. 200 years worth of massive wealth and power across Europe, five Holy Roman Emperors, and it all comes crashing to an end with Charles II, Carlos El Jequizado, who was more inbred, this is a study done two years ago, more inbred than the offspring of a brother and a sister. He was infertile and sterile, and he was married twice to try and produce an offspring, an heir, a male heir, and they described him as being impotent. As we've learned more about genetics, Rutherford says, there's a couple of big takeaways from this story of inbreeding. One, we should ideally reproduce with people who are as genetically different from us as possible if we want to reduce the chance of inherited diseases. And two, There wasn't just inbreeding in the Wedgwood-Darwin family tree or in the Habsburg family tree. There's been a lot of inbreeding in our family tree, too. Because if you keep doubling the number of ancestors you've got up your family tree, then that number just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And Mm -hmm. if if it remains completely true, you go back a thousand years and you've got more than a trillion ancestors. Now, there haven't been a trillion people. So uh, you've got to cram the number of people in your family tree at a point in time into the number of people alive at that time. And what that means is that our family trees collapse and they become sort of matted webs more than these branching trees that we think of. As you go further back in time, positions on your family tree begin to become occupied by the same people. As scientists have done breakthrough work sequencing genomes in recent years, we've seen the real story of genetics unfurl including, as Rutherford says, the fact that we don't really have family trees. Though we do know that what we might call our family web got its start in Africa. Rutherford argues that this increasing understanding of our history is because of the technology that's been applied to genetics. And that technology has totally upended the field. So I've been doing science now as an adult for 25 years or so, and I've never come across a field which has been in such perpetual revolution in the last five years Mm. as, as the human story. And the reason for it is all to do with the fact that we are now capable of 
extracting DNA from people who've been dead for thousands of years. And until we had that ability, we were entirely relying on physical remains, paleoanthropology, so digging up old fossilized bones. And that remains a, a really valid and important branch of science. There's no doubt about that. But in 2009 and onwards, we began to be able to get genomes out of these fossils, so out of Neanderthals, out of ancient humans, out of other extinct humans. And what that meant is that we had to completely renegotiate what we thought our family tree was actually like. The first and most obvious thing was that we totally interbred with Neanderthals on many occasions, basically <laughs> as often as we met them. Genetics has a lot of euphemisms in it, and we call them gene flow events. Okay, but I don't need to explain what a gene flow event is. But we had gene <laughs> flow events between Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis on many occasions. Okay, we shared our genes, however that happens. Right, 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 right. And right. so we, okay. we know that because I carry Neanderthal DNA in me. And we only know mm. that it's Neanderthal DNA because we sequence the Neanderthal genome. And in fact, mm. we now know that every European carries Neanderthal DNA in them, which means that the ancestors of all Europeans at some point, had gene flow events with Neanderthals. <laughs> but, but in some sense, they're still around because we're around and, and we've got some of their, I don't know, genetic material, right? Yeah, we certainly do. That's exactly right. We carry their legacy. So they did go extinct as a separate entity, but their legacy is carried within us. I think that's a nice way of phrasing it. In the same way that dinosaurs didn't go extinct. And at Thanksgiving, when you put a turkey on the table, right. you're looking at a dinosaur. <laughs> Which I never thought of it that way. But Well, I, I think that it's a nice way of thinking about biology as well, because it shows continuity. Right. And Darwin's great insight was that organisms are four-dimensional. We pass through time and we change with time. Mm -hmm. And when we try to describe things as they are in front of us, we're missing this temporal element to biology, which is absolutely essential for really understanding why life is the way that it is. Mm -hmm. You talk about something else that's really interesting that we think of as sort of part of genetics, this question of race. Like, what is race? And can you see it in genetics? Do you want to talk about, like, you kind of followed that question. What is race? Well, it's a big question, and it seems more relevant now than it has been in my lifetime. That's, right. that's for sure. Right. From a genetic point of view, race isn't a thing. It doesn't really exist. And so we have this huge sort of disconnect between the way we talk about race, because that's how people talk. And we, if I say someone is East Asian, you know, approximately, you can make some immediate assumptions about what they look like, mm -hmm. that they will have dark, thicker hair, um, they will have a particular skin tone, and they will have characteristics like the epicanthic fold, which is the layer of skin that typically East Asian people have over their eyes. Um, or if I talk about someone being black, then you know that I'm talking about someone of recent African descent with dark skin and, and a particular type of, of hair texture, and so on, right? The trouble is that genetics does not reflect in any way, the human variation that we sort of see in front of us. And it's evidence that evolution is quite deceptive in showing us physical characteristics, which we use as identifiers, visible physical characteristics that we think are useful identifiers, when in fact, they are 
totally misrepresentative of the total difference that we see in our genomes. So the, the example I give is like if you take two African people, say one from Uganda and one from Ethiopia, okay. they are more likely to be more different to each other than either one of them is to a European or an Indian or a Chinese man. And so th there is more variation within Africa than, than there is in the rest of the world put together. And so it's confusing. It's confusing because it doesn't reflect our experience. So, I mean, to some degree, I assume some of what we look like has to be in our genes, like whether we have black hair or red hair or blue eyes or brown eyes. You know, you were saying race in some ways genetically like isn't a thing. Some of that has to be somewhat of a thing, right? Oh, no, it certainly is. And skin color pigmentation is almost entirely determined by, by our genes. The problem is when we say, uh, you know, this is a black person or a person of color, meaning of recent African descent, there is so much variation in skin tone within the, the continent of Africa that it's effectively meaningless. And, and this, you know, there's a, there a study published just like a few weeks ago from um, Sarah Tishkoff, who's based in the States. And it shows that in fact, we now know that the origin of the variation in pigmentation, which effectively is skin color, predates the existence of Homo sapiens by several hundred thousand years. So we now think that there were early humans, ancestors, almost a million years ago, some of which had pale skin, some of which had darker skin, and a full spectrum in between. But they were all, were they all living together in Africa? They were all in Africa. Okay, but okay. How they interacted with each other is is not something that Got we it. can tell so far. Okay. But you see, you know, it becomes problematic in, at both ends of the political spectrum because you've got the so-called alt-right or straight-up neo-Nazis. I, I get a lot of correspondence from neo-Nazis um, who are saying, you know, we're Aryan. I can genetically demonstrate that I'm Norse or European, and you can't do that. There isn't a way of doing that. But they're using genetics to say, this is who I am. This is my political and cultural identity, which is not something that genetics can do. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, it's important for people of color to self-identify in their own communities. And in fact, you take two black guys from Boston and, and New York, and, and they're, they're probably genetically less related to each other as either one is to me or you or, you know, the prime minister of China. It, it also seems like you're saying that bodies are really complicated, right? There's so many things going on inside our bodies, whether it's proclivities towards a disease or uh, maybe resistance to a disease. But we can't see a lot of that. And so we put, it sounds like you're saying, in some ways, undue emphasis on some tiny little thing, which is what color, you know, is somebody's skin a little more this color, or this color, or this color, because we can see that and we can't see the other things. And we've emphasized it a lot over time. Yeah, I, I think that's. I think that you hit the nail on the head there. When you mentioned um, diseases, there, I was immediately thinking about a disease called sickle cell disease, right? And that's a recessive disease. And in America, at least, and a little bit in the UK, it is thought of by many people as being a disease of black people. And it does occur at higher frequencies within black communities. Now, there isn't such a thing as a black disease because black people isn't a good descriptor of people from a genetic point of view. What we now know is that sickle cell is a disease that evolved in areas where mosquito-borne malaria was common. And so 
there certainly are areas of Africa where malaria is very common, but it's not the whole of Africa. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it doesn't relate to the whole of dark-skinned African people. And in fact, we see sickle cell in populations in Greece, in the Middle East, in Brazil, and all around the world. And they all overlap with areas where malaria is endemic. There are lyrics in... Um, I'm a big uh, rap fan, listen to a lot of hip-hop. There are loads of lyrics in hip-hop where actually saying sickle cell is like a cuss, right? Or a diss. I can't remember which way around it is, but when I wrote this this bit in the book, my American editor changed it from cuss to diss on the grounds that Americans and British English have different versions <laughs> of this word. I yeah. digress. <laughs> <laughs> but it's become a thing. You know, it's become a cultural identifier. You're at high risk from sickle cell, which is a a horrible disease, but it is not a black disease because there is no such thing as a black disease. As we've come to understand genetics more, do you think we've come to any better understanding of how much of who we are, what we do is genetic and then how much is environmental? I mean, we've always had that discussion. And I just wonder if the needle has moved at all as we've figured out more about, you know, sort of the formula that's inside us. Yeah, man, that is a great question and one of the hardest ones <laughs> that exists in, in human genetics. So we used to say nature versus nurture. That's a phrase that we don't really use anymore in genetics and haven't done for a few decades. Nature via nurture is a better way of expressing it because nature is our DNA and nurture is our environment. And our environment also includes everything that isn't DNA. So it's not just, you know, when we when we say that phrase, I think a lot of people just think that it means whether your dad gave you cuddles or, you know, did your parents read to you? What school right. did you go to? What right. was the socioeconomic background that you were born into? It includes all of that. But it also includes, you know, the egg cell that was fertilized by that sperm. It includes the uterus in which you grew up and the orientation of mm. you growing up within that uterus. Mm. So n the nurture side of things is literally everything which isn't, isn't genetic. Mm -hmm. Now, we've got measures for the interaction between nature and nurture, DNA and the environment, but we can't really do it for individuals, mm. for people. What we can do it for is across populations. We can say something like, you know, the amount, of, this is called heritability, the amount of difference we see between people in terms of height, which is a highly genetic trait, about 80% of the difference we see in people's height is accounted for by genetics, mm. by DNA, right. which means that 20% of it is accounted for by your environment, mm -hmm. which is, you know, what you ate, how you were raised, right, what, right, what, right. what exercise you did. But 20% of height is, that's a lot, right? 20% of 100 is 20. Right. So if you're, you know, two meters tall or 180 centimeters tall, then the difference, which is environmental, it could be as much as, or quickly maths off the top of my head, could be as much as 30 centimeters. Mm -hmm. I think someone will check that and write in and say I'm wrong. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's huge. That's like a foot. Right. That's, that's, that's the difference between being five foot tall and being six foot tall. So genetics is really important in that and the primary determinant, but the variance is environmental. And that can make a huge difference to your overall physicality. What is... You know, the one thing that geneticists hope to understand in the near future, they're not quite there, but they're working on it. <laughs> I think the answer to that is everything. <laughs> so Just to narrow the, it down, everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, until the Human Genome was published in 2001, 
I think we didn't really know what we didn't yet know. And so we, I describe this as being a Rumsfeldian problem, right? You know, remember your Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. I sure do. And, and that, um, that crazy phrase that he said about weapons of mass destruction. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. There are known unknowns. We also know there are known unknowns. There are unknown knowns. So that is to say we know there are some things we do not know. You know, blah, blah, blah. And he was mocked for it. It was not elegant as a phrase. But in fact... It's pretty profound and it's really important for science that if you don't know what you don't know, right. then you don't have the sort of framework in yes. which you can start finding out that stuff. Right. And the Human Genome Project was the process of understanding what we didn't yet know. Mm -hmm. So we converted those unknown unknowns into known unknowns. <laughs> That's and, right. And the, <laughs> So, yeah, I'm sort of Rumsfeldian in, yeah. in my outlook when it comes to that. And that's where we're at the moment. We sort of know the things that we don't yet know. And it's to do with, you know, where is all of that heritability for all human traits, for complex diseases? How is it that we have fewer genes than a banana, but we consider ourselves to be a bit more sophisticated than bananas? <laughs> you know, we're beginning to fill in the gaps of how the human story migration over the earth has um transpired over the last million years or so that's all coming together and then there's disease there is relieving and understanding really complex diseases like heart disease and obesity which is an epidemic in the west in america and in the uk and and large parts of europe now and the 200 types of cancers that kill many of us and also you know neurodegenerative diseases all of these things have profoundly deep roots in human variation which can be seen in the genome and it's just a case, we're at that stage now where we're sort of chipping away at some of the details. We've got the broad brush picture is painted. We, we pretty much understand large aspects of how human biology works, but it's all in the details. And my Lord, genetics is all about the details. Adam Rutherford is a science writer, geneticist, and author of the new book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, The Human Story Retold Through Our Genes. Adam, thank you so much. This was great. Uh, it was great fun talking to you. You can hear this segment again. You can share it by heading to our website. There, we will also have a recently published look at what role race and the genetics of race should play at the doctor's office. That's all at innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, analyzing the genetic weaknesses of more than 25,000 tumors to craft precision treatments for cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash beatcancer. And from Mimecast, nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. It probably doesn't surprise you that the percentage of American women who work has just about doubled since 1950. Even by 1970, though, as the numbers of women heading to work were exploding, most of those women had low-paid jobs. Only about 10% had a college degree. Now, the number of women in the workforce with college degrees has just about quadrupled. You've got lots of female doctors and managers and lawyers and executives. 
And when women in these high-powered jobs start out, studies have shown that they are every bit as ambitious as their male colleagues. But, as Sheryl Sandberg famously said a few years back, there's still a problem. And the problem is this. Women are not making it to the top of any profession anywhere in the world. Now, you can dispute that a little bit on the margins. Angela Merkel is the chancellor of Germany, for example, and there are other female leaders in the world. Women now run 6% of Fortune 500 companies, which is the highest percentage ever recorded. But when 94% of big companies are run by men, and we really think we're making great strides towards equality, you have to ask yourself, where did all those ambitious women go? As one manager told me, they just seem to disappear. That's Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, CEO of 21st, a consulting firm focusing on gender diversity. She has spoken with thousands of men and women all over the world about what their career paths look like. And she's realized we're in a unique time. The 20th century saw the rise of women into education, into work, massive flooding into labor forces all over the world. The 21st century will see the adaptation of men and organizations or their reaction to it. And that's the question that we're facing right now. We're, we're witnessing both backlash and adaptation. Wittenberg-Cox is the author of the recent article, If You Can't Find a Spouse Who Supports Your Career, Stay Single. It appeared in Harvard Business Review, and it quickly started to catch fire. In it, she writes provocatively that, quote, professionally ambitious women really only have two options when it comes to their personal partners, a super supportive partner or no partner at all. Anything in between ends up being a morale and career sapping morass. The corporate world is still not really adapted to dual careers. Bosses themselves, particularly the boomer generation, expect really ambitious people to often be single earners. Hmm. with spouses who are willing to move anywhere and do Mm -hmm. anything Mm -hmm. uh, to follow them. And the reality for the vast majority of educated couples all over the world is they actually want to have two balanced careers. So the question then is, how willing are two humans to make that work for each other and make each other's dreams come true And when push comes to shove and you've just been given a promotion in a strange country and you have to move across the world or suddenly, you know, you're no longer ever available for taking care of the family, what choices do you make and what's Mm -hmm. the negotiation like? Mm -hmm. And from experience, I've just watched some couples really hunker down, make it work, negotiate what the power balance will be. They can take turns. They can do all kinds of gymnastics. But it's clear that they've come to a decision between them, whereas other couples will spend less time talking, negotiating, clarifying what their respective goals are. And those will tend to suffer over time. Mm. And if you have, you know, the classic thing that we're seeing now is women becoming outperforming their husbands, out-educating them, Mm. out-earning them for a generation of men that were not necessarily used to that or prepared for it and who are often unfairly ridiculed, teased, um, put down by their own peers. Mm. 
So women have swept into every possible occupation in the work world. Men have not embraced in the same way all the new roles opening for them at home as caretakers and as fathers. And when you see women doing that and you talk about um, people staying, if you can't find a supportive spouse, stay single. Do people say to you, literally, I couldn't find somebody so I stayed single? Uh, that's actually not my line. As you know, editors put in titles on that most articles. That is absolutely articles. true. My, yes. my actual line would be, what I've seen is that women, ambitious working women, have two choices, right? Whether they make them or whether they're made for them, the choices are stark. You either have a really supportive spouse or you end up at some point in your life or career opting to go it alone. Uh That's a default. It's a cause for a lot of the divorces we're seeing. I've just Mm -hmm. written a book called Late Love. And what we're seeing today is a massive increase in the number both of divorces and marriages in the 50s and 60s, which is a sort of reaction Mm -hmm. to some of these issues. If you've had a spouse that wasn't so supportive You wait generally until the children are raised and grown, and then your career is opening up and you make new choices. Mm -hmm. And two-thirds of these divorces, it's women walking out, Mm. and very often it's because it's their time in life to fly, to discover new career horizons, and often to transition into new relationships Mm. that will be uh, more supportive and mutually nurturing. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. I'm speaking with Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, the author of the Harvard Business Review piece, If You Can't Find a Spouse Who Supports Your Career, Stay Single. She's also author of the book, Seven Steps to Leading a Gender-Balanced Business. So if somebody's listening and they're like, well, this sounds really rough. I'm married. Um, I would like to be a supportive spouse. What does that mean? What does that actually take if a couple's like, we're just starting out. How do we do this? Okay, how do they do it? (laughs) Okay, so how they do it is by starting the negotiations early, making really clear what is each couple's dream, what are their goals, how ambitious are they, how do they envision the future, who's going to do what, are we going to have children, how many children, who's going to take care of them. It's so much easier to have those discussions before you have them so that you at least understand what the assumptions and expectations of your partner are. You would be amazed to know how many couples only get into these conversations when they're in the thick of things. And then you're stressed out, you're tired, and you're not usually sleeping enough. And that's not a good time to be negotiating. (laughs) Not a recipe for success. Not a recipe for success. The best recipe for success is negotiating from a position of love, happiness, and new relationship building. Do you think that people would be honest with themselves in those kinds of situations? Because it's easy to say, I will be like this in five years. It's a different thing when your career is humming along and you've got two kids and whatever to then have to make the negotiations that you thought five years ago you would make. But now you're coming under a lot of pressure from your boss to do X, Y and Z. You know what I mean? And that's what's interesting, right? And that's what's evolving is in a lot of this stuff about gender roles changing is about power balances, right? And the power balances are shifting. 
And so those kinds of conversations are very different when they're happening between two people who have the same potential, the same job promotion opportunities, and the same salary coming in. It's not the same discussion that we used to have. And so the key for couples who are really, truly, intentionally trying to make this work is they're pioneers. This is new. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to learn how to have these conversations and how to support each other. And it takes a lot of talking Mm -hmm. and a lot of leaning in from two partners who have a lot of love to share. That's the recipe for success. Love and a lot of talking. Uh, You talk about this a lot in the context of women who are sort of on the path to leadership, which is important in itself because those are the people who set maternity and paternity policies for, you know, hundreds or thousands of people in an organization, you know, and and they have all sorts of power in, in all sorts of different ways. But do you also feel like this is an issue that's tearing at couples or stressing people who are in middle-level positions, low-level positions uh, within organizations who are not necessarily on the career track that might land them in a corporate suite someday. Yes, because they are often still in very new power balances at home. Mm -hmm. No matter what your income level is, what about all these women-led households where there's single mothers at home earning 100% of the take-home pay, right? When you remember that 40% of American families are led by female bread earners, this is an issue that concerns everyone. And it will be a challenge for women as we get more power for men who aren't used to us having it. How do you find men who will be willing to support you, applaud your success, or simply clean up the dishes and take care of the kids because you have another 12-hour shift starting in three hours? Those are the kind of conversations that are happening all over the country. Uh, Finally, I want to ask you about a sign that you see that things are getting better and a sign that uh, concerns you. Let's talk about first the sign that maybe that concerns you at the moment. Uh, A sign that concerns me is the, the increasing divorce rate among the less educated Divorce rates have been falling for 30 years among the educated, and they've been Uh rising for that 30 years among the less educated. And I think it's in part because less educated men are losing jobs in a certain number of sectors that we know well. It's a big political issue. Mm -hmm. And the reaction is not to support your working wife. Mm -hmm. It's to get angry at her and resent that she gets a job more easily than you do. That's, Mm -hmm. That's worrying. Okay, so there's a kind of gender role inversion going on that's that's hard to deal with. Particularly yeah. in the lower income side of the scale and the okay. lower educated, yes. Okay, and what's a sign that you've seen recently that you feel like is hopeful looking forward? Well, there are two. I'd say the first one is 30 years of declining divorce rates among the educated. We have never seen so many well-balanced uh super happy, super equal couples ever in the history of humanity. We are designing a new form of marriage relationship and couplehood between two equals Mm. on a massive scale that we've never seen. That's exciting, it's revolutionary, and it's transformational. We're also seeing that 
it never ends. Love is, life is getting longer and longer. People are going to live into their hundreds. And it's never too late to find a super supportive partner. And I've seen and had the joy of talking to 60, 70, and 80-year-olds falling in love and discovering, sometimes for the very first time in their lives, what a supportive partner feels like. Hmm. And let me tell you, it feels pretty good. (laughs) Aviva Wittenberg-Cox is author of the book Seven Steps to Leading a Gender-Balanced Business. She's also the author of the piece, If You Can't Find a Spouse Who Supports Your Career, Stay Single. We will link to it on our website. Aviva, thank you so much. My great pleasure. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. Several years ago, a couple of professors were going about their normal routine, teaching classes, and every week the professors would have office hours, like most professors do, and they'd be available to answer questions about the homework or whatever. And one of the professors, Bill Burnett, says they noticed they were getting a lot of questions like this. I'm learning lots of stuff, but what's it going to add up to? I want my life to be meaningful, but I don't know what my purpose is. Everybody says, follow your passion, but I don't know my passion. So, you know, I got tired of answering the same questions one-on-one, and we put everybody together in a class and, you know, just started, you know, prototyping our way towards the curriculum that we now have. That curriculum is for a course called Designing Your Life, which is one of the most popular courses at Stanford. And Bill Burnett and his co-author and co-teacher, Dave Evans, have written a best-selling book by the same name. They now also work with folks who are mid-career, as well as those who are just starting out. The idea of designing something better was not foreign to Burnett and Evans. They both had experience designing. Burnett helped design the first laptop hinges, as well as Star Wars action figures. And Evans was on the team at Apple that developed the computer mouse. As professors, they felt like there were lots of college courses on math and biology and history, but hardly anything on how to design a life you'd actually enjoy. Indeed, students often hold on to what Burnett and Evans call dysfunctional beliefs, which in designing your life get unlearned. Here's Bill Burnett again. They'll come and say, oh, I took the wrong major. I I majored in history and I should have majored in computer science. Completely not true. If you loved your major, it was fine. Majors are how you organize college, not how you organize careers. Less than 20% of the people 10 years out of school are doing anything that had anything to do with their you know, major field of study. Hmm. So they, I did the wrong major, or it's too late for me to change. I thought, I, but now I realize I want to go to med school, but I didn't do the med school track. Right. It's never too late to change. There's always plenty of time. Our students are probably going to live to be 100 and work for 60 <laughs> or 70 you years. You don't so have to feel committed at 19, <clears throat> is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, you don't have to feel committed at 19. So a lot of what we did was just blow up these dysfunctional beliefs and help them get started on some questions that were actually useful. And people have different problems when they're, you know, in their mid-career. Right. And let me, before you get into that, I'll, I'll just say as a, 
you know, personal kind of confession is that I majored in English, which you wouldn't necessarily would, you know, lead to hosting a radio show about innovation. And it didn't initially. But um, I actually, because I was reading your book before, I actually walked around our newsroom and asked people what they majored in. And I felt like 50-50, like people who majored in journalism and people who just didn't. Sociology, history, theater. I heard a bunch of stuff. Yeah, most lives are not lived linearly. You know, and we're trying to invent this thing called the future. Nobody's been there before. So you're actually trying to do an impossible task. You can't navigate your way to the future. You know, when you use your GPS thing in your car, you know exactly where you are. You know exactly where you're going. And you have right. data about all the space in between. So then you can plot the efficient pathway. And we're so used to engineering solutions in the modern world, we think we can fix or solve anything. So one of the things that our students and, frankly, many people present to us, even in their 30s, 40s, or 70s, is what did I do wrong? I don't have it all figured out, as though you could figure it out. You can't figure it out. What you can do is get better and better at the innovative process of making it up as you go along. That's what we teach people how to do. You become really good at the improv game we call life. So in looking beyond like a major... I can see somebody saying, look, I'm 30. I've invested several years into, you know, being a banker or whatever it is. And, um, you know, I've climbed up I, I up the ladder to some degree. I understand how this industry works. And it's hard for me to imagine, even if I kind of want to do it, stepping off the ladder. It would mean starting all over again. I don't know that anybody would be interested in somebody who knows a lot about banking but obviously hasn't done anything else. What do you say to that? You know, I just talked to this woman on Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Um, <clears throat> literally, I, was, I did, I did a, a, an event with a whole bunch of young millennial people, 34 to 40, most of them. Um, and the woman walks up to me. She's six years into a career as a licensed social worker. Hmm. And she wants to jump into the finance industry. A very natural step, obviously. Yeah, you know, sure. Oh, you're, you're good at social work. You ought to be running a hedge fund. Right. Um, so she goes, what, you know, what do I do? I'm stuck. You know, and I said, of course you're not stuck. And, and your question, how would you imagine and how do you jump off the ladder? Well, first of all, how do you imagine? We can absolutely help people do that and have more ideas and get creative. We have some tools for doing that. And the best way to do that is talk to people who do it now. So we teach people how to make you know, connections with strangers and network, which is much easier than you think, to get people to tell their story because um, everybody loves telling their story. You can start learning what it's really like. And then maybe it's a big jump off the ladder, but you could do that a rung at a time and probably mm. with a parachute on. You don't have to make it terrifyingly scary. We set the bar low uh, and clear it and then repeat. The big thing people um, misunderstand is that it's a huge jump, and we, we shorten that jump a lot. Okay. I'm, I'm interested in that. Like, I'm really interested in the social work to finance thing. That does feel like a huge jump to me and that like people in finance would not think, oh, social work, that is a great, you know, uh, preparatory step for being in finance. Right. Well, the first I mean, the first thing is that's what she thinks she wants to do. She actually knows absolutely nothing about whether she'd be any good at or like finance. She just knows she's ready to change. So we say, look, you're going to make some prototypes. First prototype is a prototype interview. Go find some people who are doing the thing that you think you want to do and ask them for their story. Get 30 minutes of their time, buy them a cup of coffee. When you hear those stories, you'll start to realize what is actually the truth about being a, quote, finance person, which, mm -hmm. by the way, has as many versions as designer or social worker, right? Mm -hmm. You need about two dozen cups of coffee before you even get to have a smart picture. Yeah, yeah, and so then let's assume she hears some stories, they really do resonate with her, and then we say, hey, go, go, shadow, uh, go shadow this investment banker or go shadow this um, financial planner. 
she got shadows the investment banker. She comes back and she says, it's just people who sit in rooms all day, talk about numbers. I think it was horrible. She shadows a financial planner. She goes, this is a person who's helping people uh-huh. plan their future mm-hmm. and, and their retirement and what's going to happen to their kids. I really related to that because mm-hmm. that's the part of me, the social worker part of me that wants to help. Right. So now all of a sudden she's discovered there is a place in finance that actually would value her soft skills. She still is going to have to probably go get a degree or maybe do some work in college or, or in a community college to build up a, you know, a set of skills that would, would give her access to an entry-level position. But, you know, as a, we were talking to somebody else who was a banker, and he said, hey, it's just, I get it. It's just the concept of sunk cost. My old career is a sunk cost. I'm right. just going to write it off and start the new one. Right. But right. I'm going to start it with small steps that are easy to take, that are not too scary. And um, it, half the time people discover, oh, this fantasy idea of the new career. Mm-hmm. It's not what they thought it was. Right. And they, they end up not jumping off that ladder. Um, Bill, uh, you talk about like these dysfunctional beliefs that people have, but they are often widespread. And you mentioned one in particular that that jumped out at me, which is the idea that if you are successful, you will be happy. I think to a lot of people, it's hard to believe that those things are not just completely linked, success and happiness. Well, it's funny because like if you study anything about adult development or anything in the literature of sociology or stage theory, there's zero linkage between success, happiness, money and happiness. Um, prof- you know, professional accomplishment, maybe, if it's, if it's also surrounded by great relationships and other things. So as we've been going out, and Dave and I have done, I don't know, 100 different events and a bunch of book stuff, uh, when I go out and I do a little mini workshop, uh, typically someone will raise their hand and they'll be stuck. And 9 out of 10 times, it's a very successful person. Huh. Uh, top lawyer at the firm, partner in the big uh, investment firm or something. Mm-hmm. They're very successful, vice president of something. And I'll say, what's the matter? And they go, I'm stuck. And I go, why? He says, well, because everybody tells me I should love my job. I'm so successful. Mm-hmm. I've got everything everybody says that I should want, and I'm miserable. So this notion, you know, that, that – and, and they were really, really betting on success would make them happy. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't. Success – happiness comes from, you know, relationships, comes from – uh, you know, being effective in the world in something beyond yourself. Almost all of the studies of happiness and uh, Martin Seligman's um, book called Flourish, Flourish. Uh, is, has a model for, for happiness. And it's much more than, you know, kind of monetary or, or the personal professional success. But it is funny. They describe themselves universally as the most stuck people in all of our workshops. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. They're the authors of the book Designing Your Life, which is also a course that they teach at Stanford. Do you feel like there is something about uh, this design approach that is there a reason that it has taken particular hold in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I think there's, you know, um, people need innovation and the process of innovation, the speed of innovation. I'm sure lots of the people you interview say it's going faster and faster. Right. Uh, companies are under more pressure. Markets are being disrupted, you know, by two kids out of Stanford, get a crazy idea to make pictures disappear, and boom, you have Snapchat. That right. was my advisee, Evan Spiegel, came in my office with that idea one day. I, I told him it was a terrible idea, um, <laughs> which he, he loves to quote in the press. But um, so the, the process is going faster and faster, and about 70% of new products fail. They hit the market. They don't solve a need that anybody really has. They're too hard to use, or they they are they are misdirected somehow. And so companies are really, you know, searching for an innovation process that works. You know, I was on the first laptop team at Apple. We didn't know what a laptop looked like. Nobody did. 
Um, and then we invented one, and now everybody that's and everybody copies that. That's mm-hmm. what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what we're trying to do when we're designing our lives. We're trying to create this future. We don't know what it's going to look like. We're probably going to have to sneak up on it and build lots of prototypes. And, and it really has to fit the user precisely. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's got to fit the user. And the user has to have empathy for themselves and also empathy. What what does the world need me to do? Mm-hmm. And it, it felt very much like the design thinking process, which was working so well for companies and in innovating in products and services and experience design, uh, would work for the experience of being me. Hmm. You also make this point that the design thinking process is lifelong, right? It's not just for 19-year-olds. It's not even just for 30-year-olds um, that you can keep reinventing. Because I think a lot of people think, at 50, really, who's going to hire me to do a new thing? Uh, there's a limit to how long I can sort of keep changing it up. I just, Actually, that's I, not true. You know, it, it, it turns out, it, it's not, I, was, I was just talking to a good friend of ours who's actually the mother of one of the people it, whose story is in the book. She, I'm going to put her in the next book. Um, about 55, 53, 54, uh, and uh, woke up one day and said, I don't want to do what I'm doing anymore. You know what looks like the interesting thing to do is this user experience, user interaction design stuff. It has something to do with computers and how we use them. Took some online classes built up a little portfolio, found someone she knew at a company here in the Valley, Intuit, very creative company, does you know, Quicken and all those products. Um, he said, you were really good at that last thing you did, that project management thing. I bet I, 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 take, a, I take a risk on you. I'll give you a six-month contract on this UI stuff because I've seen your portfolio. It looks pretty good. She parlayed that six-month contract into an 18-month contract with um, a very large company and is now a UI designer at Google mm. at 55. Wow. Took her about three years to make the transition. Um, all of her project management and other skills are vital, you know, to being effective in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And now she's got a portfolio of new stuff. So she's pretty nimble. She's smart. She knows how to access information. But, boy, she's not special. Anybody could have gone mm-hmm. online and learned that stuff. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, there's so much you can learn by just, you know, getting up on uh, your laptop or Google. So I, it isn't just, for, I mean, it, as Dave said, it, wherever you are, so we have a big sign over the, our studio called You Are Here. And in the front of the book, if you take off the cover, it says You Are Here. Wherever you start, single mom, two kids, trying to get them, get them through high school, get them off to college. And, Coming out of... You know, you know, a vet with PTSD. Yeah, just trying to make a living and trying to go from a crummy job to a little bit better job. And when people and we're think... Not yeah. go ahead, we're not pretending anybody can do anything. This isn't Pollyannism. You know, design isn't magic. It won't suddenly turn you into somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that there are some people who are in very difficult situations. They're, they're you know, racially oppressed. They're, they're, you know, they were dumped by their parents, grew up in the foster system, you know, have bounced out of addiction. Okay, You've got a tough hand to play. We're not going to suddenly make that hand wonderful, Mm -hmm. and now you've got a straight flush. What we are going to try to do is say, wherever you are, what tools can you use to make it a little bit better? That's what we're trying to do. What would you say, like, the first kind of actionable, simple step would be if you were to give somebody just one thing to start with? You know, um, particularly we... Because we've been out on the road talking about the book in a variety of settings, people say, can you, can you just boil it down for us? Can you give it to us in one sentence? You know, and we like to say, well, we're Stanford educators. We eschew simple <laughs> sentences. And the, the life of the complex human person is more than a sentence worth of, of feedback. But in, uh, an honest answer to your question would be, yeah, we can. Uh, and the really <laughs> hyper-simplified thing, which really contains most of this, um, is the threefold step of, number one, get curious. Number two, Talk to people. Number three, try stuff. So get curious, talk to people, 
try stuff. And the first one is really where the power is. We even talk about curating your curiosity. I'll let Bill speak to why curiosity is the starting place for pretty much everything we do. Hmm. You know, we're mostly taught to be rational, skeptical people and, you know, to ask good questions. And that's mm -hmm. just not useful when you're trying to invent something that's never been done before, if you're mm -hmm. trying to invent the mouse or the iPhone or something. So curiosity, you know, gives you the energy to go meet strangers and talk to them. Curiosity gives you a valid point for inquiry. Like, I, I really want to hear your story. I'm not fishing for a job. I'm not fishing for a recommendation. Makes you authentic. Yeah. I'm just really authentically curious about mm -hmm. how did you end up, you know, hosting this, uh, this, this show mm -hmm. um, on innovation. And um, that curiosity leads to these experiences in the world and in, in information interviews and prototyping experiences, shadowing and other things, which give you information, you know, to just be in the world. And that's where the answers are. Bill Burnett and Dave Evans are the authors of Designing Your Life. They're also the teachers of the course by the same name at Stanford. Thank you so much for taking the time, both of you. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. It's great to be at the Innovation Hub. If you want more from Burnett and Evans on how to design your life, head to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, danafarber.org slash beatcancer. And from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. And from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI, Public Radio International.